Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. Interesting political story this week. A whistleblower complaint has triggered a tense showdown between Congress and the intelligence community. The complaint involves President Trump's communications with a foreign leader and an alleged promise that he made. Caitlin Oprisco, she's a reporter for Politico, joins us for more on this whistleblower complaint. So last week, Adam Schiff, who's the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, he filed a subpoena for this whistleblower complaint that was filed with the internal watchdog for the all the U.S. spy agencies. The watchdog received it about a month ago and deemed it to be urgent and credible. And so by law, the uh, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence usually has to submit the whistleblower complaint to Congress within seven days. That didn't happen. And so the watchdog reached out directly to Congress. And now they're kind of like in a tense showdown over the contents of this complaint. And like you said, we don't know what's in the complaint. The reporting by the Washington Post says it's about features of the president, centers around his communications with a foreign leader, made in a phone call, and that it, like you said, involved some sort of promise that he made. So the phone calls that the president is having, they're usually monitored by a few different agencies at a time. So this is how somebody was able to maybe hear it. It's unclear if the whistleblower actually heard it directly or uh, gained the knowledge somewhere after that. But the Washington Post had reported that the president did have communications with at least five different foreign leaders in the weeks leading up to when the complaint was filed. And they, they kind of determined that based on, you know, readouts from the White House and other publicly available information. And one of the things that they noted is that he had a phone call with Russian President Vladimir Putin, which has piqued a lot of people's attention that the Russian media reported that phone call first. And then it wasn't until, you know, the end of that day that the White House even confirmed it took place. And this administration has been like kind of murky about readouts of phone calls between Trump and foreign leaders. So there's really no way to know for sure exactly what was said in that phone call. But he's also, I mean, not limited to phone calls. He's met with two or three leaders in the White House since that time, gone to a couple summits where he's met with world leaders. So he's talked to a lot of world leaders in that time, right before when the complaint was filed. The acting director of national intelligence, Joseph McGuire, has not wanted to release the contents of what the whistleblower actually said. And this is leading a lot of people, including Adam Schiff, to say that they're just trying to provide cover for the president. One of the things that he said is that this specific complaint isn't subject to the statute, the whistleblower statute, because the subject of the complaint is not within his purview, is not work in his office, and is not like in the intelligence community. And so the general counsel for McGuire argued that makes it out of his purview. And so that's why they went to the Justice Department seeking legal guidance for this. And Adam Schiff said today after his briefing from the inspector general that he has reason to believe that the Justice Department said that they didn't have to turn over the complaint. How has the president responded to this? I know he's sent out a few tweets. He said this is another fake news story, but what else has he mentioned about this? So his tweets this morning were the only comment he's 
that he's given on the report so far. Like you said, he called it fake news. He also said that anytime I speak on the phone with a foreign leader, I know that there's, you know, any number of people listening from various agencies. And he said, is anyone dumb enough to believe that I would say something inappropriate with the word that he used? He said, on such a potentially heavily, heavily populated call. And then he said, I would do what was right anyway and only good for the USA. So he's shutting down this idea that he would say something inappropriate to a world leader on a phone call. Caitlin Oprisco, reporter at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Big story this week that is still ongoing. The United Auto Workers Union went on strike at General Motors, sending almost 50,000 members to the picket lines. The union is pushing for GM to improve wages and narrow the pay gap between older and new workers and reopen plants that have shut down. Among other things, GM wants workers to pay for a greater portion of their health care costs. For more on the story, we spoke to Phoebe Wall-Howard. She's a reporter for the Detroit Free Press. Well, a couple of things happening here. Nearly 50,000 workers, as you said, and that's in 10 states. So this is not a Detroit or Ohio issue. This is a national issue. This, of course, is where the United Auto Workers are saying they brokered a deal with General Motors during the economic recession. They forfeited vacation. They forfeited wages and they forfeited other benefits, saying we're all in this together. When everybody's making money, bring us back to the table. So the GM workers actually broke a contract that protected them during the recession, took massive cuts at the time, and says now GM is a very healthy company. Its executives are paid very well. Do not cut our health care and protect our wages. What's interesting is the Center for Automotive Research notes that the UAW wage is actually down 16% since those cuts. So that's an industry-friendly organization at the University of Michigan that says the wages today are lower. So that's what you have here. At GM, they have this kind of two-tier system where older workers are, you know, making whatever money they're having and new employees are getting hired in at much lower wages. And some of them say that that causes kind of strife between them because they're doing very similar work and they're getting paid vastly different salaries. Absolutely, with the temporary workers and the two-tier. And that is an issue where the workers say they really want parity. Interestingly, the workers on the line I interviewed last night said it makes them feel better that everybody has the same wage. So some of the strikers that I talked to were the higher wage strikers, and they felt it was fair, again, bringing everybody up. A number of people hadn't had pay raises in years. I know GM has wanted them to pay a greater portion of their health care costs. That seems to be a big sticking point. They pay very little, the employees, compared to average workers across the country. But that's where GM is trying to save some costs by having them pay a little bit more of their health care costs. The health care is a big issue, like for all companies. The issue that labor will say is that their jobs are exceptionally physical and more prone to injury, frankly. So their point is, yes, we have better health coverage, we are also in significantly more dangerous conditions in terms of repetitive motion and even dealing with robots. For now, workers that are striking will get paid $250 a week while they're out of work, although they do have to wait, I think, 15 days before this actually kicks in. $250 a week is not very much. That's going to be pretty tough for them to live on. For their part, on GM's side, they said that Things won't really get affected to the consumers for about 70 days or so. That After that, then you'll start seeing certain models or colors or things that consumers want that they might not be available at that time. 
two things that you touch on in terms of the $250 a week. One is that the local union halls have been collecting food and non-perishables. So people throughout the community have been collecting goods in support of the union workers, many non-union people. I saw them delivering cars full of materials, especially in Flint, people from driving all over the state of Michigan and delivering that stuff. As far as days and supply, GM is absolutely confident that it has prepared and produced, so they do have a stash. However, remember, we learned the Teamsters have announced that they are 100% supporting the UAW workers. That means that they will not be delivering vehicles. They will not deliver them from the factory and they will not deliver them to the dealer. So when the truck drivers say we will not cross this picket line, that is a very serious issue that hasn't gotten a lot of attention. But that's 1,000 truck drivers who are saying we won't be returning your phone calls. There has been a scandal going on with the United Auto Workers leadership. They were using union funds for lavish trips and things like that. How has this impacted all the negotiations and the workers themselves? How do they feel about all of this? So the issue of fraud and scandal and FBI convictions over the last two years, it's real with the national United Auto Workers. However, the workers will say separate from that, many say they're happy to be striking and they feel like it's overdue. So for them, the issue is some of the folks at the table doing the negotiation are under federal scrutiny right now for potential wrongdoing. These are leadership teams, some of which have pleaded guilty and have been given prison time. So that is a valid issue, a valid concern, and frankly, the focus of tremendous anger and resentment. Phoebe Wall-Howard, one of the auto and labor reporters for the Detroit Free Press. Thank you very much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thank you. There's a company called Digital Recognition Network who's built a private nationwide surveillance database that could potentially track the movements of car owners over long periods of time. This network is built on the backs of repo men equipped with cameras that scan the license plates of every car they drive by and then add it to a searchable database that's accessible to private investigators, repo agents, and insurance companies. For more on the story, we spoke to Joseph Cox. He's a senior writer at Vice's Motherboard about how to track someone with this digital recognition network tool. This is not a database created by government, although law enforcement can also pay for access as well. It is, as you say, created entirely by a private company. And they um, sell or give these cameras to repo men who drive around and they sort of simultaneously benefit from the database, which is that if they pass a vehicle and the system says, hey, that that vehicle is marked repossession, you can go get it. So they get that benefit as well. But as they drive around, it scans, it continually updates the database sort of simultaneously. Uh, And even though repo men are the ones who are you know, primarily building this database, they're certainly not the only ones using it. It's also accessible by insurance firms. And in the case of my source, who looked up a plate for us, they were a private investigator. And they could use that data for everything from tracking, you know, a spouse that someone suspects of cheating, right up to sort of repossessing a car, something like that. There's a wide spectrum of use and potentially abuse uh, of this data. Right. Yeah, these stories are always very interesting to me. You know, we all we see a lot of stuff in TV and movies, and you just kind of naturally think this stuff is widely available. And then you read a story like this, and you're like, wow, that stuff actually is true. So that's why these things are always mm. interesting to me. We did an interview previously on the podcast with a skip tracer, 
And we were asking her, hey, you know, some of the methods that you use to track people down. And for obvious reasons, she didn't want to reveal any trade secrets or anything. But then I read this article and I was like, well, this might be exactly one of the types of tools that she's using. So you did get in touch with somebody who helped you use this service and look up a license plate. How did that whole thing play out? Yeah, so we've been covering sort of um, sort of similar to what you touched on then, the tools that skip tracers or bail bondsmen, private investigators or bounty hunters. Of course, they're not all one and the same thing, but they do often make use of the same sort of tools. Uh, previously, we did um, an investigation on where you could track cell phone tracking data. Uh, as in the location of someone's phone and bounty hunters were doing that. After that sort of reporting, more people reached out and eventually a private investigator with access to this DRN system got in touch. And then, of course, I wanted to verify that the um, system worked as advertised. And then that's how we devised this sort of test. Because, I mean, to be clear, DRN has been around for, you know, around 10 years now. It is not a new system. It has been building up over that time. It's around 9 billion scans now. But to try and give the readers a sense, sort of a more tangible, concrete sense of what this tool actually is, we thought we would actually use it. So we gave a license plate to the private investigator who looked it up, and then they did see that, well, the person cars parked here then it's over here now it's in a different state and then i gave that information to um the person who gave us consent to be tracked and they gave us a bit of context like oh yeah that's that photo is outside my house uh that is when a member of the family drove to go see someone else in a different state so it is possible to track wow. people as you say over a long period of time and in potentially um sensitive situations. I mean, throwing back to an older case from years and years ago now, but a police officer was using similar technology to sort of uh, surveil and catalog people who were driving and parking outside a gate and then trying to extort them. That was a long time ago, but this is the similar sort of technology uh, today that could be used for that as well. So how much does this cost? The DRN, it seems, charges uh, $20 to look up a license plate. That's not very expensive at all. Right, yeah, it is relatively cheap. Once you get access um, by being a Reaper man or whatever, it's $20 for a lookup and then $70 for a so-called live alert. You know, you'll you'll give it a plate that you want to have constant um, information on, and then whenever the system spots it, it will um, send you an email or some sort of notification. So once you do get in, as it seems to be with a lot of these skip tracing or private investigator tools, once you're inside, it is pretty cheap. Um, to do these lookups. Because, of course, for this community, and especially the bail bondsman ones, let's say there's a bail for 10 grand, they don't want to spend thousands of dollars on this tool. And because this system has been built at such scale, companies like DRN can afford to offer this sort of information at a relatively cheap price. So how wide is the DRN reach? Obviously, the scans can happen throughout the country. Do they have these cameras set up with repo men in every state, pretty much? Yeah, so I won't be super specific on where we did the test and what states or what cities, just to protect, you know, individuals' privacy there. But in our tests, it was um, various states uh, across the country, and I was also sent the results of a scan uh, in a large metropolitan city that was a, like, on a much more granular uh, level. Uh, sort of the other way to go about it, I guess, is look at the states that have pushed back against it with legislation. Uh, there was you know, one in Utah, but then DRM pushed get back against that, and that law got um, overturned. But from everything that we can tell, it is nationwide, 
uh, or nearly in every state. Of course, it then depends, you know, whether a repo man has actually driven past that area. If you're in a city, it's going to be a lot more dense with a lot more cameras. If you're in the middle of nowhere, maybe your vehicle hasn't been caught. But we phrase it in the article as coast to coast, and that does appear to be accurate, yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the legality of all this. Mm. Uh, pictures taken in public are protected by the First Amendment. So theoretically, pretty much everything that they're scanning, all these license plates, since it's happening in public, there's no expectation of privacy. It should all be legal. But let's say in the case of uh, a car that needs to be repossessed, something like that, or you know, they're looking for a bad guy, you know, most people are going to say, okay, that's fine. Go ahead and, and do this. But they're picking up license plates of everybody, pretty much they pass by potentially. And members of the public mm-hmm. really would have no way to know whether their data has been collected by this or not. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's sort of two points of the legality. First is the collection of the data, which, as you say, it is legal to go take photos in public under the First Amendment. Um, And that is what DRN says it's doing here. It just says, hey, we're just taking photos in public. Uh, But critics of that, like the American Civil Liberties Union, they will say that at a certain point, this qualitatively becomes something else. I mean, this is not the same as a PI driving around and, oh, I happen to find someone's car and I'll take a photo of their plate. This is automated at scale. Uh, and it's not really necessarily what the law uh, had in mind when it was written around this sort of public photography. But then you also have the legality of accessing the data. So after it's been collected, and then, of course, someone wants to go use it. If you're a police officer, uh, when it comes to you know search and seizure, you're going to be doing stuff under the Fourth Amendment. Uh, now, some people believe license plate data should have a warrant. Some say it shouldn't. There's still debates around there, but at least there's a debate around it. When it comes to private companies, I mean, the Fourth Amendment doesn't apply to them, right? They can do whatever they want with data. It would be a repo man, insurance firm, or in our case, a private investigator. So it's almost there are almost fewer protections around the data when it's being used by DRN and private individuals than it would be if it was uh, law enforcement. You mentioned the mm. potential for abuse of this system. What did they say uh, with regards to that? So it's not entirely clear how the tool has been abused. Uh, The examples we gave are, you know, maybe a jealous ex trying to spy on their spouse. There could be corporate espionage. There could be lots of different things. Uh, But what they did admit, uh, the company in a public uh, council hearing, I believe, was that, yes, people are sharing access. So if I'm a PI and I have a username and a password, apparently people are then giving those to other people who don't actually have authorization to use the tool. Uh, so not only do you have PIs who may be using the software and the system for you know malicious purposes, such as stalking someone or following someone, they can then re-share that access with someone else as well. Uh, And just the issue is sort of what you touched on. We don't know how it's being abused because there's very few avenues to follow up on this. You can't go and, you know, do a freedom of information request to find out if your data was in here because it's a private company. Uh, So we know that the access has been abused. We just don't know exactly how yet, but obviously we're hoping to get more information on that. Joseph Cox, senior writer at Vice's Motherboard. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.